Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you're having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 9.48 p.m. Sunday night, getting it done early, and I am excited to get this to you. Sorry if I sound weird. Uh, I um, have like a chronic cough and I'm coming off the tail end of a cold and it's kind of bad right now, so I'm just doing everything I can not to hack all over the microphone. I feel fine. It just stinks that I have to think about coughing all the time. And it's something that I deal with a lot. So if you are so inclined, I will absolutely accept prayer. (laughs) I would love to feel better and not have to worry about it. That would be amazing. Um, Anyway, I hope you're awesome. A couple things. Number one, trying something new this week. Uh, Chris, who visited us a couple weeks ago, uh, suggested that we keep the benediction in. And I've, I've had that suggestion before. I've even tried it once. I could never figure out a way to make the transition from the end of the message to the benediction make sense. So I tried something tonight where I, I didn't really transition at all. I just kind of cut the music, looped it underneath her, and she just went straight into the benediction. So I don't know. Let me know if you like it or if you don't like it. I'm sure you like it because... Hannah's benedictions are the best. Um, So that's cool. We got small groups coming. Go to diff.church if you want to sign up. And uh, last but not least, I left a silly thing that Hannah said at the beginning of the message in as the first thing that she says. It makes me laugh, and I hope it makes you smile. Here it goes. I care deeply about pizza rolls. All right, I'm breaking the rules and jumping back in because I just want to make sure you understood that she said that she cares deeply about pizza rolls. That is your pastor, everybody, Pastor Hannah. Now, in January we did philosophy, so we like talked about philosophy and then we talked about some scripture a little bit later in this session, but today we're switching it up. We're gonna talk about scripture immediately because this is in fact a church. So we're gonna read the scripture together and then we'll discuss. This is what it says, it's in Numbers 11, 24 through 30. So Moses went out and reported the Lord's words to the people. He gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. And then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. And it never happened again. I love that line. <laughs> that was a one-time thing, okay? Your past has been revoked. Uh, two men, Eldad and Medad, had stayed behind in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle. Yet the spirit rested on them as well, and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Snitch. (laughs) Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since his youth, protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. Um, Translation for modern day. How dare they? Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish all the Lord's prophets, were, all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them all. And then Moses returned to the camp with the elders of Israel. Cool. Everyone's favorite Bible passage, right? <laughs> I know you all read numbers every day of your life. <laughs> this is a funny little narrative in the middle of, middle of a much longer narrative about the Israelites traveling from Egypt to the promised land, which is Israel, and they're just like in the wilderness It's like basically a desert, but not the desert like we think of a desert, like rocky mountain desert. And they, before this passage happens, the Israelites are complaining. It's a spiritual gift of theirs. It has been passed down through many generations and through my family. And I'm also 
great at complaining. Just ask my husband. <laughs> and they're in the middle of nowhere, okay? The journey is long. They are tired of it. They are over it. There is no promised land in sight. It is getting to everyone. And the final straw for these people is they are really tired of eating manna. And manna is like this food that God sends them overnight. Every single night, there's manna on the ground. And then they eat it, and you only get enough for one day. And if you try to gather more than one day's worth, it spoils and like has worms in it, which is ugh. So they can only gather enough for one day. And every night, God puts new manna on the ground. And they called it, manna means what is it? Because they don't know. They've never seen this food before. And it makes me think of like when Nova was learning to talk, she, didn't, she couldn't say what is it. So anytime she was in, confronted with a new object, she would be like, ooh, that. <laughs> You'd be like a banana, ooh, that. She once saw a person who was really short, and she was like, ooh, that. <laughs> and I was like, well, people come in all sizes. And she just accepted that answer because it's the truth. And so I like to think of these Israelites when they first saw manna as being like, ooh, that. And now, now, it has been weeks, months, and they're like, ugh, that. <laughs> like they are over it. They're tired of manna. It's better than no food. But like eating the same thing every day for every meal gets old very quickly. And before we get on our high horses and we're like, the Israelites should just be thankful for God's provision. Some of y'all don't even eat leftovers once, okay? Let alone a hundred times in a row. These people are getting so grouchy. They're like, it's been so long since we've had any meat. We just really wish we could have some meat. It's been so long since we had a special Sabbath dinner with the wine and the vegetables and the, he carved the roast beast. And it's just, we're so sad. And they're complaining. They're like utterly miserable. And I, having the privilege, question mark, of growing up in church, have heard so many sermons that are like, the Israelites are just so ungrateful. They should just be thankful for what the Lord has given. How about you put some gratitude in your attitude, okay? Um, and I think this is completely reasonable. Like, does anyone else think this is unreasonable for the Israelites to be like, this food sucks. We're tired of it. God of the universe, you can't think of more than one food to give us. It seems like the normal human response to the never-ending process of doing the same thing over and over and over and over. And we also know that like, if we're expressing outrage over something small, it's usually because there's something big underneath the surface. And I mean, what could be under the surface for them? Grief, fear, exhaustion, anxiety, too many days with their kids in the wilderness. All of that gets channeled into something as simple as being like, having manna for dinner again. And when we have few emotional reserves left to live on, I think the smallest things usually lead to a big disruption. This is two weeks in a row. I have not taken off my earring. Yeah, Jared's going to kill me. He didn't last week. It was my free pass. What I have to say about that is microphones are sexist. <laughs> I'm not allowed to be fabulous while I have a microphone on my face. Apparently not. <laughs> um, a small thing, such as an earring and a microphone, may cause a meltdown if you have big things going on underneath the surface. And I feel like we can easily identify this in children. Like, if you tell a toddler no too many times in a row, like they just have like a nuclear 
burn the house down level meltdown. And we're like, how could they? It's not that big of a deal. Meanwhile, as adults, no, I don't want to call anyone out. Let's just move on from that. (laughs) These people are so emotionally drained. They're so grumpy. They are starting to reminisce about the good old days back in Egypt. And if you've read the Bible, you're like, the good old days. When your life was terrible? Like, sure, they were slaves in Egypt, but at least they had Sunday dinner with the family. Like, sure, they were worked to the bone every day of their life by cruel masters, but at least they lived in a house by the river instead of a tent in the middle of nowhere in the desert with no promised land in sight. Sure, they had no future in Egypt, and they didn't have their freedom, but at least they didn't have to exist in the endless unknown of the wilderness and face their demons and try to make their own way in a world that refused to accept them or make space for them. They weren't better in Egypt. Things were not better. But they weren't unknown. Like, how many times do we do this? We just wish for the safer old option that we just escaped because the present is too difficult to face. Even if the old thing was, like, literally killing us. So the Israelites are complaining. They're just, like, bitter and hopeless and angry, and the only person they know to complain to is Moses, their leader. And Moses, in turn, complains to God about how difficult these people are being. Nothing makes them happy. They're hungry, they complain. They have food, they complain. Moses is on the brink of burnout from trying to do everything himself, which is a whole different kind of sermon, and he's just as emotional as the Israelites are. And he even says, did I give birth to these people? Did I bring them into the world? Modern translation, these are not my kids, and I wish they would stop screaming in my face. I am not getting paid enough to handle their crap. Oddly, in this narrative, God seems very human as well. Like, the writer of the story, the narrator, portrays God as also entirely fed up with the situation and the Israelites. So even God is getting passive aggressive. God promises to give these annoying, complaining people so much meat that it will come out of their noses. And they will be so sick of it that they will never want meat again in their lives. What? God threatens that they're going to have to eat meat, this same meat, for a whole month until the thought of eating meat again makes them want to vomit. And then Moses has to talk God off a ledge. And then they agree together that actually the real problem is Moses needs help (laughs) managing people because people. And... Some other people need to share the loads. They get 70 elders to help him lead all these nonsense people who are just being regular humans and being like, I don't like this a lot. What a fun little narrative. Anyone who says the Bible's boring, I'm like, you have not read the Bible. The Bible is hilarious. The people are complaining, a completely normal response to being overwhelmed and feeling out of control. And then Moses is complaining, a completely normal response to feeling overwhelmed and out of control. And then the authority figure in the story, God, is also complaining and resorting to threats to get people to back off. And you know, if we like look at world history, this has never happened from like leaders of anything. They never complain and resort to threats to get people to back off. Um, it's a pretty normal response. And the point of this, people get very hung up on like, well, how could God act like that? That's not the God we know. That is not the point of this story at all. The point of this narrative is not that God acts just like an overwhelmed, vindictive human. Of course that is how God is written in this passage. How could God be anything else? The writer 
the people, they don't have any experience with God being anything else. They have not encountered the God that comes to, their, that comes to mind when we think about God. There was no frame of reference for that in their culture. In ancient society, gods were mad at people all the time about all sorts of things, threats and bribes and being petty and vindictive. It was like par for the course for ancient gods. The Israelites did not have any concept that their God actually didn't act like that. In fact, most of the Old Testament is God being like, hey, I'm not acting like that. And they're being like, well, we think you are. We're going to write you like you are. And God's like, again, if you just reference any of the things that I've said, I would not act like that. And we have like a 10,000-foot view, so we get offended on their behalf. We're like, how mean, how dare God be so mean to these poor people in the desert? And that is not the point. It's not the point of the story. The point is that even in their limited understanding of what God was, they were going to learn something new and crucial about how their God actually was different from the gods of the Egyptians and the surrounding cultures. And they're going to come out of this story not with a full understanding of what God is like. We don't have that even today but with an understanding of how God encounters people that they didn't have before. And it was actually so important that they wrote it down and has been preserved for thousands of years. So what's the thing they're learning? For a while, God has been meeting with Moses in a singular set-aside place, the tent of meeting. The tent was sacred. And even in the middle of the wilderness, even when they're traveling, like it gets set up, it gets taken down, it gets set up again. On the first day it's built, the cloud covers the whole structure. It looks like a cloud during the day and fire during the night. It means that this is where God is, this spot. This continues indefinitely. The sacred meeting tent is called the tabernacle. It's like this has this central role in the life of faith of the entire community of the Israelites. It is a significant symbol of God's presence with them and to them. So when they question anything, they can just look at it, look at it. And be like, oh, yeah, the cloud's still there, which means God's still with us. It's a constant in the middle of great change. And when the 70 elders, which isn't like a literal number, it's just a number meant to reference a large group of people, the 70 elders are invited to the tent to meet with Moses and to meet with God to get their instructions on how they're supposed to handle all these nonsense people. And they're invited to leave. This is where they live. This is where God is. They're invited to leave where they live and go to the tent where God is. That's the place where they start prophesying. They encounter God in the place they expect to encounter God. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see God on that mountain over there. God's not over there. God is in the tent. That is where God lives. Everyone knows this. It is a fact. If you were an ancient Israelite, you'd be like, where's God? Right there. (laughs) They're very literal. Except two people stayed in the camp. Why? I don't know. Maybe they were busy. Maybe they had a stomach bug. We don't know. There's Eldad, Medad. They're in the camp. They're in the middle of the ordinary common spaces where everybody lives. Not where anyone's prophesying, but where life is happening. Like laundry is being done. (laughs) And dishes are being washed. And kids are screaming. And manna is being cooked. And there's just running around and noise and hustle and bustle. And they are not in any kind of set-apart, dedicated space. But they have the same encounter with God. They're prophesying just like these people who went to the tent. And this 
is what is known as some hot gas in the ancient world. <laughs> Spreads like wildfire. They start prophesying, and some kid immediately is like, huh. <laughs> I got to tell Moses about this. Somebody needs to know what's going on. So he runs. This is so important that he runs to tell Moses that two people are prophesying. Why? Because this is a breach of expectations, both about God and about authority. How could God possibly be showing up somewhere outside of the designated God place? If God is just going to be, you know, talking to people here or there or any old where, surely everyone's going to be confused. They might challenge church authority. <laughs> it must at all costs be controlled. This doesn't, this has no application to current evangelical church culture. None. And Joshua's right, Joshua, who is Moses' right-hand man, is like very upset by this. He's like, Moses, you have got to make them stop. I am next in line. If they're prophesying, like, do you even need me? My paycheck depends on this. And Moses is like completely unbothered by the whole thing. Everyone's freaking out, and Moses is like, yes, yeah, so? Um, and they're like, no, you don't understand. This is a crisis of international proportions. And Moses is like, yeah, I wish everyone was prophesying. And they're like, I don't think he understands. Do you understand what I'm saying? Moses was so much more interested in prioritizing the accessibility of God to everyone than he was with his own authority and control. Moses does have like personal and intimate knowledge of the importance of setting aside a sacred space to like connect with God and focus attention on God through all kinds of ways, worship, teaching, gathering together, but it, that does not prevent his ability to value an ordinary encounter with God also. In fact, Moses is like, I wish everyone everywhere would have this experience. And that's the point. That's the point that the whole story is trying to teach us. This little truth that the Israelites are encountering for the very first time, that God does not have to meet people in our pre-assigned spaces with our pre-assigned rules. People have been meeting God outside the church for a long time. I don't love that as like a church employee. I want to be like, of course you have to come here. <laughs> our flavor of God is the best one. It's the very best flavor. There is no other flavor that can compare to the flavor of God that we have here. Obviously, like if you take the, the tree of like all of theology, it starts with Jesus and it just goes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like the biggest March Madness bracket you've ever seen, but like the opposite direction. And then we're like here. That's where we got it right. Jesus is so, so lucky to have us. <laughs> So many churches act like that. They're like, this, this, all of this doesn't really matter except that it got us to here where we finally got it right. And now we know what God is like. And this is how you do it. God's been meeting people outside of that for a long time. Sometimes it's really unexpected, like God meets a person when they're praying wherever, at home, dancing in a bar, taking a walk outside. Sometimes it comes because people have been suppressed or oppressed or kicked out of church for who knows what reason, and God refuses to be placed in our tiny suffocating boxes that insist that people have to believe and act the same way we do in order to encounter God. 
Y'all can come back up here. You better come back up here. I'm going to get preachy. I'm feeling Pentecostal. <laughs> if you know what that means, bless you. If you don't, you probably had a better childhood. <laughs> uh, there have been so many people like Joshua that are just like appalled. They're so threatened when they hear the experiences of like God encounters from people who are outside the mainstream church. Sometimes we're those people. Sometimes we're horrified and threatened when someone has a different experience of God than we're used to. There is no place where God can't meet someone. God's been meeting people outside the church forever. God's been meeting people of color, black people specifically in this country, for centuries while they were prevented from accessing the so-called sacred spaces where the proper people worked, worked, worshipped. Proper's in quotations if you're listening on the podcast. I hope you can tell from the sarcasm in my voice. God has been meeting the queer community for years while they have not been allowed to practice their faith in any meaningful fashion inside the church in America. God has been meeting women for millennia <laughs> while they were not allowed to speak or teach or even share the good news. God's not going to stop meeting people, especially groups that have been marginalized or harmed or oppressed. God doesn't give a crap about our rules. And maybe we should be a little like Moses, and we shouldn't either. Maybe we should say, I wish everyone everywhere all at once should be able to have access to even just a little bit of the love and acceptance that God has given to me. Sometimes, just like the Israelites, it takes like our complete and total breakdown or, you know, nearing the edge of it before we're finally willing to recognize the unhealthy patterns we're living in. Sometimes it takes a crisis for us to like really open our eyes to what's going on around us or inside of us to finally make space for us to learn something new about God, about faith what it means to be a person of faith. I wish we would all be like Moses. Not in like the burnout and the meltdown and, you know, not that part. Maybe let's like ask for help before we go off the deep end. But in the part where he's like, I wish all the Lord's people were prophets. I wish every person could have access. I wish every person could have an experience. I wish every person could have just a taste of the hope that I have. I want us to reflect on that this week. Like the ways in which we as a faith community can welcome all people together and reject no one because God can be encountered by all. Come Holy Spirit and wake up the people of God. The earth is crying out for healing. Come Holy Spirit and revive what has grown stale. Wash away everything that suppresses, silences, condemns us. We go in faith at the spirit of moving, even when we can't see it. She grows like a fire, burning brighter each day. Let us open our hearts to the work of love. God's work is always brewing, 
and the holy potential for the renewal of all things surrounds us. Amen.